0: Good morning, Uh, my name is Brett, I'm one of the pastors here, Um, so good to see you guys. If you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Romans, chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got Bibles in these black chair pockets and at the ends of the side aisles, Um, and if you don't own a Bible, please feel free to keep that one. Um, The book of Romans, Romans is in the New Testament, sixth book, so after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts and Romans, and we'll be reading there in just a moment. My wife, uh, Kim, and I have been married for almost seven years, and one of the things that we've learned in the time that we've been married is what entertainment we can enjoy together and what entertainment we need to enjoy separately. So, for example, I know that when Star Wars Episode Eight comes out in December, I don't need to ask Kim if she wants to come with me, um, because she won't. And so I'll go with Dave Ward or Thad or, or one of you guys. And, um, you know, comic book movies, same deal, right? No interest. And she knows that when a romantic comedy comes out, she doesn't need to ask me. She just needs to get a group of girls and go, and I will stay home with the boys. And my, my opposition to romantic comedies is not because I hate feelings. Um, Kim will tell you that I'm actually quite a crier at movies, but it's because uh, it's because. I disagree fundamentally with the underlying message of basically every romantic comedy, which is that romantic love will save you. It'll save you from loneliness. It'll save you from your weird single friends. It'll save you from your overbearing boss. If you can just find the right person, it'll change your life. You'll live happily ever after. And that's not true, but that's another sermon. Romantic love can't save you, but romantic comedies do get something right, which is this, that a love that knows you completely and accepts you fully will change your life. And that's not so far from what the Apostle Paul is getting at in our passage today. One thing that we at Sunrise are passionate about people understanding is the difference between the message of Christianity, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and religion. And Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, has said it this way. He said, the go- or religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. So I do all the right things, and then God accepts and approves of me. Religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. The gospel says, I am accepted because of what Jesus Christ has done, therefore I obey. Do you guys see the difference? That, that in Christianity, God's love comes first, and our obedience is a response to what he has done. Um, He loves and accepts us, saves us, and makes us his own, not because of what we do, because of his own mercy. So Paul says elsewhere in his letter to Titus, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. But then people wonder, if I'm accepted by God, Not by what I do, regardless of what I've done. Does that mean I can just keep on going as I always have? I mean, if I'm accepted by mercy alone, what's stopping me from just indulging myself, living however I want, and then just counting on my get-out-of-jail-free card to take care of eternity? But for other people, that's not their question, because they they understand that a love this amazing, a work like this, it it does demand a response. I should live differently, but I I don't know how to get from here to there. How, how do I change? And God has helped for both of those kinds of people in our passage this morning. So let's read together Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, and this will be on the screen behind me as well. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Would you pray with me? Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. Father, your word is a treasure, it is a gift, it is you making yourself known to us. And so we're so thankful for the Bible this morning, thankful we don't have to guess about you, that you've told us who you are and what you've done, and we want our, our thoughts, we want our life to be conformed to what you've said, God. And so we thank you for this space, this time, to look at your word together, and we pray that you would come and do your work among us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to see in this passage one thing we need to reflect on, two things we need to do, and a beautiful outcome. And You should have an outline on the back of your bulletin. First, something we need to reflect on, the mercies of God. Paul says in verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So we know something right away. We know that this passage is an appeal. Paul is urging us to do something. There's something he wants us to do. There's a way he wants us to act. We're going to have to do something in response to this. And he's calling, he's basing his call to act on something, which is the mercies of God. He wants us to reflect on the mercies of God and then do something in response. So what does he have in mind when he says the mercies of God? Well, in a sense, it's, It's everything that came before this in the whole letter to the Romans. You could title the first 11 chapters of Romans, The Mercies of God. Paul's been laying out all that God has done for his people. There aren't many commands, actually. In in the first 11 chapters of Romans, not a lot of things to do, but Paul's telling us what God has done for us. And what Paul's been explaining to the Roman Christians is that all people, no matter where they live or what their life is like, what their background is, all people stand in need of God's mercy. He says in, in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all loved things other than God. And because we love things other than God, we've all broken God's law to get the things that we want. And the wages of sin, he says, the wages of sin is death. And so we've all broken God's law. We all stand condemned. We all need God's mercy. But God's, God has done something stunning for us. He says in Romans 5, Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we had a death sentence hanging over our heads, and God sent his perfect son to take the death sentence, to die on the cross in our place so we could be forgiven. And when we trust that, when we trust in Jesus, Paul says that we're counted perfectly righteous, as though we'd never sinned at all. He says that we are justified counted righteous by God's grace as a gift. And for Paul, that's just the beginning. That's, that's just the beginning of what God's done. Because of what Jesus has done, we have peace with God, he says. He says we'll never be condemned. We are adopted as God's children. The power of sin over us is broken. He's given us the Holy Spirit to help us to change. And, and what God has done is wonderful all by itself, but it becomes, it becomes incredibly powerful when you remember that he did all that. It wasn't free for him. He did all that at the cost of the life of his son. That is the nature of his love. Those are his mercies. Those are the mercies of God. And Paul wants us to bring that back into our minds, to remember all that he said before as we move into chapter 12, because Romans 12, verse 1, is the pivot of the whole book of Romans, 11 chapters of what God has done And then a therefore. There's a right response to mercy. It's leading us somewhere. If you're a Christian, God saved you from something, from death and sin and hell, but He also saved you for something, which is what we're getting into. So let's see what mercy calls us to. The first thing we need to do, Paul says, is offer yourself to God. Now, if you were here last week, we looked at Paul's testimony from 1 Timothy, his, his account of how he experienced God's mercy. And we saw there that when Paul was thinking of all that God had done for him, his natural response was worship. It was praise. He broke out in song. He said, To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And we see the same thing here, that the right response to mercy is worship. But a worship much deeper than just singing. He says in verse 1, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. So the worship that mercy calls us to is presenting our bodies to God as living sacrifices. Now that, that takes some unpacking. That's that's a, that's kind of a weird thing to say. What is a living sacrifice? Well, what is a sacrifice? A sacrifice in the Old Testament, was something that you gave up or you gave to God to show how much he was worth to you. So there, there was this whole sacrificial system, right? There were these offerings for sin and guilt because every, break, every time you break God's law, it, it has this death penalty, this every, every violation of God's law, every sin deserves death. But God in his grace said, just give me the life of an animal and you go free. I'll accept a substitute, I'll accept a sacrifice and making that offering cost people something. I mean, their wealth was animals. And so every time they brought a lamb, every time they brought an ox, they were giving up something really costly to them. But they were doing it because that was what it was worth to them, to honor God's holiness and to to honor his forgiveness, the way that he had said that he would set them free. And there were also sacrifices unrelated to sin. So there were peace offerings and thanks offerings goodwill offerings, that they weren't because you did something bad. They just, you just wanted to come show God how much you loved him and how much you were thankful for him. You would bring things to the temple to be sacrificed just as a way of saying, thank you, I love you. And, it, and giving that up showed what God's presence in your life was worth to you. And Paul says that in light of God's mercy to us, only one sacrifice is, is adequate. Only one makes sense, which is to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. So our sacrifice is ourselves. Not, not that we just die for God, but that we'll live for God, that we'll devote our lives to him. The, the sacrifices of the Old Testament, they were one-time sacrifices, right? You brought, you brought your lamb, and it was sacrificed, and it was over, and you went home. But a living sacrifice is one you give every day. Every day we say to God, I belong to you. Every day we say to God, I'm, I'm yours. I want to live for you. Now, why does he say that we should present our bodies as living sacrifices? Like, doesn't God care about our minds and our hearts and everything going on on the inside? And he does, right? He wants us to love him with all of our hearts. We'll see that he wants to renew our minds. But he says bodies because we have this tendency to compartmentalize our lives and to segment off pieces of it. We say, I'm a Christian, that means I go to church at least once or twice a month, and I give to the church, and I should probably read my Bible every now and then, and that stuff belongs to God, and the rest is for me. We don't necessarily want to think, we try not to think, that God may want to say in, in where we work, or who we date, or how we treat our parents, or how we spend our bonus, or how much we drink, or whether we exercise, or how we raise our kids. We're, we're much more comfortable keeping God sort of in the boxes of, like, Sunday morning, and quiet time, and the way I feel about him, but we don't necessarily want to give everything to him. And so Paul says that we, our, 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 our worship, our spiritual worship, isn't just feeling warm about God, but we give him our bodies. We give him the things that we do. The stuff of everyday life belongs to him. He wants it all. God wants to make you, if you're a Christian, he wants to make you totally new. And that means holding nothing back from him giving it all, giving yourself entirely to him. You're the sacrifice. You give up your old way of living and resolve to live for the purposes and the pleasures of God. And this, this is one of the paradoxes of Christianity, right? Because on the one hand, what we've already said is, is mercy comes to you freely, right? Salvation doesn't cost you anything to get it. God gives it freely as a gift. He does it because he loves you. does it because he's good. But, receiving that gift is costly because the right response to it is to offer your life entirely to God. And it has to be this way because if God wants to change you as profoundly as he says, that's going to cost you something. Things are going to have to change in your life. And that might frighten you a little. Does that frighten you a little? It can kind of take your breath away to say, "What, what God is asking of me is to hold nothing back. There's no part of my life where I can say, But this this is safe. This this won't change. This I'm gonna keep this just for me. There's no part of your life you can say that of. And that's why the only way we can do this, to offer ourselves to God, is by remembering his mercies. He gave his son for us. He gave his son for you. Do you think he's gonna ask anything of you that's not for your good? Do you think he's gonna make any change in you that's not an improvement? If you can't trust a God who died on a cross for you, who can you trust? When I, when I officiate a wedding, when the couple exchanges rings, part of what I have them repeat is this. As they're putting the ring on the finger, they say, with all that I am and all that I have, I enter into the covenant of marriage with you. It's a recognition that marriage requires complete commitment. You can't have one foot in and one foot out. You give yourself entirely to your spouse, and that takes a lot of trust. It takes a lot of trust to stand there and say, all that I am, all that I have. But that's what God is asking of us, which takes trust. But haven't his mercies earned your trust? So the first part of our response to God's mercies is to offer ourselves to him. And the second thing we need to do, he says, is be transformed. Look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So Paul says you have basically two options. You can be conformed to the world, or you can be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so I have this picture in my mind, and it's, it's, kind, of a, it's kind of ludicrous. It's a silly picture, but maybe it'll help you. So I, I imagine like a big conveyor belt, like in a factory, right? And, and we you, the people in this room, we're like on this conveyor belt. We're heading somewhere. We're on the assembly line and there's this big press, this like pneumatic press that's clamping as we come through and it's making us exactly the same as we go through the press. Is that picture clear to you? It's just, it's just running us off the line. We're all the same. And that is the pressure that this world puts on us to conform, to be just the same. And, and that's not what our culture says, right? Our culture says that you should, you should go your own way, you make your own destiny, like you discover yourself, be unique. But what they really mean is, as long as you think exactly the way we do about everything, as long as you think the way we do about sexuality and marriage and gender identity, as long as you think the way we do about religion, that they're all paths to the same place, as long as you think the way we do about happiness and how you can get it through getting more stuff, There's this intense pressure to fit in, to go along, to think like everyone else thinks, to do what everyone else does. And that's one option. One option is to be conformed. And the other option, he says, is to be transformed, not from the outside in, but from the inside out. Being so changed and renewed on the inside that it shines out through your face and your attitude and your actions. Instead of becoming just like everyone else, you become your true self, the person God made you to be. And Paul says that what makes the difference between being conformed and being transformed is your mind. It's your thinking. If we experience what he calls in verse 2, the renewing of your mind, the renewal of your mind, will be transformed. And if we don't, we'll be conformed. Why? Because the default state of our minds is not reliable. We like to think of ourselves as being totally impartial, clear-minded. We see things as they are. We make great decisions. And that, and that was the case once, like in the garden. But after Adam and Eve turned from God, it didn't just affect our desires. It didn't just affect the difficulty of our lives. It affected our thinking. Paul says earlier in Romans, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So our minds were made to work with God as the main reference point, like the, the North Star, right? And everything works in relation to him. So we, just, we think, what has God said about this? And what is God like? And what pleases God? And that helps us to see things clearly. But when, when God sort of disappeared from our thinking, now our main moral reference point is ourselves. What, what do I feel like? What would make me happy? What do I want right now? And, and our conscience became unreliable. Our compass doesn't point north anymore. And trouble in our thinking led to trouble in our lives. And it took us further and further from the way God made us to live. So if you've been a Christian for a while, you might know this because you might be able to think back on what decisions you made before you trusted Christ or when you were a new Christian. And you just think, what was I thinking? Like, I, I became a Christian in university. And so the summer after that, the summer after my freshman year, one of my friends came to visit me at my home because um, we were on break from school. And I think he was a little appalled to see what my life outside of our sort of campus ministry was actually like. So I, I was playing a lot of Ultimate Frisbee that summer. Um, and, I, and he came and played with us. And I, got very, I was very invested in Ultimate Frisbee to the point where I would, I, I would just be shouting, I mean shouting, Obscenities at the top of my lungs. If the if frisbee was intercepted, if the if the other team scored, I'm just just the the worst language you can possibly imagine. My friend pulled me aside and he's like, "What's with, what is with the language?" And I I mean I, I've made no connection between my sincere trust in Jesus, my desire to live for him, and the things that were coming out of my mouth. And, you know, then this friend and I, we went on from there. We were doing something afterwards, and we were talking, as young men do, about young women. And I was talking about, like, there's this girl I want to ask out. I'm not sure what's going on. And his first question was, well, you know, tell me about her. Is she a Christian? No. I, I just, I had made no connection between what God has said and my dating life. And I look back on that now, and I just think, what was I thinking? Where, where was my brain? And the answer is, it wasn't as renewed then as it is now. And there are things in my life 20 years from now, I'm going to look back on this and be like, when I was 33, what was I thinking? Because my mind is not as renewed now as it will be in 20 years. Change is a process. It's gradual. There's no magic pill that will get, get you suddenly thinking just right. But you can, you can speed up or slow down the process depending on what you let shape your thinking. So when I was growing up, there was an inventor who always had these infomercials on late-night television, at least in America. His name was Ron Popeil. And, um, and he sold, like, food choppers, food slicers, food dehydrators, beef jerky makers, barbecue ovens. And his catchphrase was, just set it in, forget it. Right? Just You put all the right ingredients in, close it up, Three hours later, perfection emerges. Just set it and forget it. And sometimes I think we think this way about how we change, how God changes our lives. We just think that, that change is sort of this process running in the background and it's going to just kind of do what it's going to do no matter what we do. So we think, like, it's no big deal. I'll just, I'll just sit on the, the couch for three hours. I'll watch television. And hey, presto, when I get up, I'll be more like Jesus, you know, because it's just, it just happening automatically. And that's not how Paul says it happens. He says it happens by the renewing of our minds. We have to have our brains engaged with truth. With this book, and I I have a pastoral concern on this point. Um, I'm concerned about the effect on our spiritual growth, and hear me out, of social media and streaming television. And my, my concern is twofold. One is, how much time we spend on it. And the second is the cumulative effect of its content on it and, and, on us. And I, I don't mean like just kind of the breathtaking violence and sexual content of a lot of it. That's a problem, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that all this stuff has a worldview. It has a perspective. It has a way of seeing the world. It has an opinion on who God is and what right and wrong are it has an opinion on what the good life is and it either reinforces how god is shaping your mind or it resists that and i don't think the only option here is total withdrawal right like i'm on facebook and instagram and i, I like a tv show at the end of the day i watched cloudy with a chance of meatballs last night and i thought it was delightful okay so it's not like we have to just throw out our devices I don't think faithfulness means, you know, we just withdraw and just read theology six hours a day. But if you spend an hour a day browsing social media and you spend two hours a day watching TV and you spend 15 minutes a day reading your Bible, then what is shaping your thinking? Are are you going in the direction of being conformed? Are you going in the direction of being transformed? And if you have kids, I mean, what are they seeing in your life? How are you setting them up for a life of, of being, being changed by this book rather than what comes through a device? Now, I'm not trying to put a guilt trip on anyone here, right? I, I've had to make changes myself this week. Like, this really reinforced for me, I have this habit in the morning. I get up early before the kids, and I make coffee, and I read the Bible. But often, I'll I'll set it and forget it. I'll, I'll put on the coffee, and then I'll just get on my phone and just start browsing. You know, just while I wait for the coffee, just browsing. And this has really helped me to see that I need to reach for my Bible before I reach for my phone in the mornings. My the news and my email and my Instagram likes are all going to be there at six o'clock if they were there at five. Now, remember what we considered earlier: this this paradox that that mercy's free that that salvation is a gift, but that it costs you something to receive it. And what it's going to cost you is you can't live just like everybody else. If if we watch what everybody else watches, and we read what everyone else reads, and we scroll through what everyone else scrolls through, we're going to end up like everyone else, because what your life becomes is determined by what is working in your mind. Now, the shows you like might be fine. Facebook is fine, but we're going to have to limit some things that are fine to make space for the things that are best. I was reading this yesterday in my quiet time. The psalmist says that God's word is, to be, is more to be desired than gold. So you just, I just look at the dimensions of this room. Imagine this room just filled to the top with gold bars. I mean, imagine how much gold could fit in this room. Would you trade that much gold for this book? If someone made you that deal... No Bible for the rest of your life, but you can have all this gold. Would you Would you trade it? If you would, then there are things here you have not yet seen. There are treasures that you have not yet found. The psalmist says, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. This book is worth getting up early for. It's worth Staying up late for it's worth cutting things out for. It will renew your mind and transform your life, and it's going to cost you something too. So, I, and remember now that I can't read your mind. So, when I ask you this question, you can be completely honest with yourself Does that seem worth it to you? Maybe it will. Maybe it'll help if we look finally at the beautiful outcome of all this. Lastly, a beautiful outcome a life that pleases God. Paul says that if we do this, that if we are transformed in the renewing of our minds, that we will know the will of God. Look at verse 2 again. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Anybody here ever wonder what the will of God is for you? You ever wonder, what does God want me to be doing? Where does God want me to be going? Paul says that as our minds are shaped, not by what our culture says about who we are and why we're here, but as, as we're shaped by what God says about who we are and why we're here, we'll know his will. He says that we'll, by testing we'll discern the will of God. And that word, um, it could also be translated that we'll approve the will of God. It isn't like by testing you discern the will of God and then you see it clearly and then you're like, well, but maybe not. You, it's, he says that as your mind is renewed, not just... You won't just know what God's will is, but you will want to do it. You'll, you'll know God's will, and you'll approve. You'll say, yes, that's good. That's where I want to go. And if that happens for you, your lives will please God. And this might be, I don't know, this might be a liberating thought for you. There's a certain kind of person that this, this surprises. You can please God. You, you can please God. God. He says so here. He says it in two different ways. He says, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. That word is pleasing, holy and pleasing to God. He says in verse 2 that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable, pleasing and perfect. You can live a life that pleases God. Now, we'll never be perfect. We're going to mess up But don't worry about your mess-ups, right? God has forgiven your sins. If you trusted in Jesus, you are counted righteous in his sight. God is not counting your sins against you. But he's called you to this. Offer yourself to him. Be renewed in your minds. And when you do these things, you'll you'll know his will. You'll love his will. You'll do his will. And your life will please him. Your life will touch and gladden the heart of God. Don't you want to please him? Not as a way of paying him back, but as a way of showing him the love that you have for him. Showing him your gratitude for what he's done in Christ. This is what God wants. He wants you. He wants your life offered to him. Your mind renewed. Your whole life transformed. Everything aimed at this. A life well-pleasing to him. Listen, the right response to mercy is a transformed life of devotion to God. And if you're saying right now, yes, yes. That's what I want. That's where I want to go. I don't know where to start. Just start by telling him. So as we pray together in a moment, as we sing together, express to God, express to God, I want to live for you. I'm so thankful for what you've done in Christ. I want my life to please you. I want my life to gladden your heart. Just tell him you want to begin. Maybe That might be a great way to start each day. So as you you come awake in the morning, maybe before you even roll out of bed, maybe while your eyes are still shut, just, ex- just call to mind the mercies of God. Call to mind that he has sent his son to forgive you and make you righteous and make you new and send his spirit and make you his child. And then say to him, God, I want to live for you today. I want to be yours. You've, you have bought me with the life of your son. I want to be yours. I want to live the way you want me to live today. But you might be saying now, I'm not sure if that's what I want. I, I'm not sure what that's going to cost me. There's, there are things in my life I don't want to change. And if, if that's you, thank you for being honest with yourself. I'll never know. Um, but I would just encourage you to call to mind again what Jesus has done, right? Before he asked you to be a living sacrifice, he was a sacrifice himself, wasn't. He, he entrusted himself entirely to God by suffering on the cross what our sins deserved so that he could be with us forever, so he could make you completely new. He loves you. He gave himself for you. Won't you trust him? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we... Um, we, just, we meditate again, we consider again your mercies and the love that you have that compelled you to come from heaven, from perfection, to live with us and to live for us and to die in our place and to rise from the dead. We remember that even now you are in the presence of God interceding for those who have trusted in you, that you are, you are still for us. And all of your words are good. And we thank you that you don't just leave us how we are, but you want to make us new. And we ask that you would. And I ask that you would help me to, to day by day, tomorrow morning when this is hard again, to offer myself to you, to offer my day to you, my work to you, my family to you, my choices to you. And I pray that you would do that for each of us. And that as you do, that we would please you, that our lives would bring you joy, and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.